This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, the paradox of harm reduction to treat opioid addiction. Why would you, quote, unquote, help somebody use drugs? How a group of drug users transformed one city's struggle with addiction when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show. Here's a preview of what they're covering on Viewpoints this week. This week on Viewpoints. We say that two heads are better than one, but actually that's not usually true, but sometimes it is. And two heads are better than one when those heads think differently enough. What makes for an exceptionally effective group? Then... In an age of budget cuts, why it's important to support public libraries. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station, iTunes and Stitcher. By some estimates, the opioid epidemic claimed as many as 64,000 lives in the U.S. last year. That's up from 15,000 deaths 20 years ago. So perhaps the last thing you'd expect anyone to do to stop the epidemic is make it easier for addicts to take drugs. But that's exactly what the city of Vancouver, British Columbia has done. Their controversial policy is called harm reduction, and experts say it's helping addicts get clean. I do understand where people who oppose harm reduction are coming from, because it can sound counterintuitive. Why would you, quote, unquote, help somebody use drugs. That's Travis Lupic, author of Fighting for Space, How a Group of Drug Users Transformed One City's Struggle with Addiction. Harm reduction is a strain of a field of healthcare that Vancouver pioneered for North America in the late 1990s in response to problems of addiction and problematic drug use. It's built on an understanding that it is not necessarily the drugs themselves that do the most harm to a user but the prohibition of the drugs, the fact that the drugs are illegal. And in turn, harm reduction seeks to alleviate those harms. So an easy example is uh, needle exchange, needle distribution. It recognizes that an infectious disease such as hepatitis C is not spread by cocaine. It is spread by dirty needles. And so harm reduction seeks to eliminate that dirty needle problem by providing a user with clean needles. And the way to provide clean needles and a safe space to use drugs, Lupic says, is to establish a supervised injection facility. Vancouver is home to North America's first supervised injection facility, which was opened here in 2003. I'll begin by telling you what a supervised injection facility is not. Um, It is not a place that distributes drugs. You're not allowed to sell drugs at a supervised injection site, but you are allowed to use drugs there. So what the city of Vancouver did in the early 2000s was recognize that drug users were using drugs in dangerous places like alleys where they were filling needles with things like puddle water that had all sorts of terrible little pathogens in them. You heard right, puddle water. To inject drugs, you need to mix the substance, usually the heroin or the cocaine, with water because you can't inject the powder into your bloodstream. So you mix the drug with water. Because drugs are illegal, we push people to the alleys. Often, the only source of water they have is in puddles or drains. And they said, the sorts of conditions that we're forcing people to use drugs in are hurting them. Can we alleviate that harm? And part of the solution they came up with was, let's establish a supervised injection facility. Instead of injecting drugs in an alley, 
or you're using puddle water or running from police. They gave people a space. They said, you can bring your drugs here. We'll have a registered nurse watching over your shoulder. We'll give you clean equipment, clean needles. We'll give you clean water. You can use your drugs in a manner that is as safe as possible. Lubick says the idea for harm reduction came not from city officials, but from drug users. It started with an entity called the Portland Hotel Society. The Portland Hotel, which uh, shortly after its founding became the Portland Hotel Society, was founded in the early 1990s in Vancouver. In response to a housing crisis, Vancouver found itself leaving a lot of its people with uh, mental illnesses, with addictions on the street. And a young woman, just 25 years old, named Liz Evans came along, and she was given a hotel, an SRO they're often called, your stereotypical sort of run-down, beat-up slum, to be honest. And she took that hotel and she began bringing people in off the street with this one really simple yet really revolutionary idea. She said, you live here now, and no matter what you live here, we're not going to kick you out for your drug use, we're not going to kick you out for your mental health outburst, we're not going to kick you out if you have a rough night and you do something destructive. This is your home now. And that was the one principle that the Portland Hotel was founded on. And that one little phrase, this is your home now, had unintended consequences, surprising and welcome ones. They found when you remove the threat of eviction for drug use for a mental health outburst, people actually use less drugs and have less mental health outbursts because you've removed that stress, that fear of eviction. Fast forward 20 years, and this is actually a very popular, increasingly popular social policy we call Housing First. It says, you live here now, no judgment, this is your home. That's good as far as it goes, but Lupik says during the mid-1990s, Vancouver experienced the highest HIV infection rate in the world outside of sub-Saharan Africa. There were no real health care facilities in the 20-block radius where these addicts lived. People were dying in the streets every day. Lupik says it wasn't unusual to see a body lying on the sidewalk on the way to work. Drug users were frustrated with the response of city officials, or the lack of it, so they organized a coalition called VANDU, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. Nobody had ever asked drug users what their ideas were for drug policy. Nobody had ever asked drug users in North America, what do you think we should do in response to addiction? And when Vandu began demanding a say on those questions, it turned out they had some pretty good ideas, ideas that have worked out really well in Vancouver. For example, a supervised injection site. They said, we have nowhere to use drugs but the sidewalks. We're afraid of getting kicked out of our rooms at the hotels, and we're afraid of getting arrested. And if they had an injection site, they said, we would be able to use drugs in a more safer manner. And we could also clean up a lot of the riffraff on the streets. Vandu marched and protested to get city officials' attention and succeeded. Lupik says when the first supervised injection facility called Insight finally opened, business owners that had originally opposed the idea quickly came on board. They saw after the facility opened, drug users were no longer in their doorways. They were inside the injection facility, Insight. They found that needles were discarded on the street in fewer numbers because Insight was sending crews out to clean them up and offering disposal bins at their facility. So when drug users were eventually consulted on drug policy in Vancouver, it had huge benefits for them, but it also had benefits for the community as a whole. Lupik says that even before his book was released in the United States, he received inquiries from cities like Boston and Philadelphia for more information about this controversial harm reduction policy. But he says not all U.S. city officials are accepting of the idea. Cities across North America continue to harm drug users today. 
there are large jurisdictions such as the state of Florida that still make needle distribution illegal. I would argue that the state of Florida is hurting drug users there by forbidding them from accessing clean equipment to use drugs that they are addicted to. I think if you ask 10 people today, is addiction a disease? Nine out of 10 of them will agree with you, yes, addiction is a disease. But if you ask those same 10 people, how should we respond to addiction? The majority of them still will say we have to prosecute, we have to arrest dealers and that sort of thing. We're in this weird space around addiction where we tell each other that we agree it's a disease, but we don't take the next step and actually respond as if it is a disease. We think we understand addiction, but if you look at our actions, I really would argue that we don't. Even some former drug users are against the idea of supervised drug injection facilities. Lupic cites the work of Matt Bell of Ohio and his drug abstinence program called Team Recovery. Matt was very careful to stress with me that he's not on board with needle exchange and, and, and that sort of thing. He focuses on abstinence. But him and his friends are now one of the largest distributors in Ohio for naloxone, the so-called overdose antidote. He told me, uh, we're doing more naloxone distribution than anybody else in the state now. But, but don't call it harm reduction. We're not on board with that. I understand where Matt is coming from where he says, no, it's only focused on abstinence. But the reality is for a large number of people, a majority of people struggling with an addiction, abstinence um, is not so simple and often doesn't work. Relapse rates for heroin and cocaine use are extremely high. What harm reduction says is we're going to keep you alive for another day. We're going to keep you alive and we're going to keep you as disease-free as we can long enough for you to get into treatment, to get to that point where you can one day move to abstinence. It's a lifeline. It gives people time. Back in Vancouver, upstairs from the supervised injection facility Insight, is the detox facility called OnSite. Lupic says this dual approach works. A harm reduction policy ensures that clean facilities help to keep drug users disease-free and keep them alive long enough to eventually graduate to detox. However, Lupic says there's a shortage of doctors who are willing to go into the drug addiction field. It's a field that is not a very popular one. I think the world of doctors. I've had great experiences with them in my own life. I've found them to be the most caring and sensitive people I've encountered. But we need doctors to take a much greater role in response to America's opiate epidemic than they have thus far. I think it's a harsh and sad truth that a lot of doctors do not like taking on long-term addicts as patients. They don't like to see them in their waiting rooms. They're complicated patients. The success rate is low. But this is affecting such a huge portion of our continent's population now. Everybody knows somebody in their family or their group of friends who has struggled with an addiction. And so we need to make addictions medicine something that's easier for doctors to get into and something that's more tenable for them. Van Du is advocating for yet another controversial policy that will likely prove even more difficult, if not impossible, to establish than the first supervised injection facility in North America. What Van Du is pushing for now is nothing less than an end to prohibition. It sees the overdose epidemic as a problem of fentanyl, the dangerous synthetic opiate that's poisoning a lot of drug markets in North America today, and it sees fentanyl as a result of prohibition. The extent of the crisis that North America finds itself in today is almost incomprehensible. In the United States last year, in 2016, there were 64,000 fatal drug overdoses, up from 15,000 just 20 years earlier. It's you know an increase in a number that's so large it begins to lose meaning. This will sound radical, but I think at this point there is no solution to this crisis but to legalize and regulate drugs.
it's a radical policy and it's a policy recommendation that I came to very reluctantly over a number of years. But I think the extent of the problem is so radical that that our response needs to be equally radical. However, as far as the first phase of harm reduction is concerned, Lupic has hope. North America's opiate epidemic is challenging, but I've seen so many amazing stories come out of it. The people and the activists and the doctors on the front lines who are doing amazing work in response to this crisis, there is a lot of hope in that story too. Vancouver's supervised injection facility Insight is very possibly the most studied health intervention in the continent's history. The number of academic papers that have been written about this place just stack and stack and stack on top of each other. And what the papers say is that Insight saves lives, Insight reduces harm, and Insight also helps people get into treatment. So I know that for a lot of jurisdictions in the United States, the idea of a supervised injection site in their community can sound scary, but the research is in and it says that in Vancouver, our supervised injection site has saved a lot of people's lives. Harm reduction does help people get clean. You can learn more about Travis Lupic and his book, Fighting for Space, by visiting our website at radiohealthjournal.net. Our writer-producer this week is Polly Hansen. I'm Reed Pence. Medical notes this week. Patients with asthma who haven't responded well to treatment may be greatly helped by injections of a drug for eczema. Two studies in the New England Journal of Medicine show that patients with moderate to severe asthma reduced flare-ups by half or more after getting an injection of dupilumab, a drug approved by the FDA for eczema in 2017. Patients taking the drug cut their emergency room visits about in half, and those taking steroids for asthma were also able to reduce their dose. Scientists have developed a prototype early warning system for the four most common types of cancer that make a dark mole appear on the skin when it's activated. Researchers call it a biomedical tattoo and say it would be inserted under the skin, monitoring genetic changes in the body. Mutations associated with lung, colon, breast, or prostate cancer would make the implant turn a dark color, which would be visible through the skin. Researchers say in the journal Science Translational Medicine, that the test is at least 10 years away. Surviving a heart attack may be as simple as exercise. A study in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology tracked nearly 15,000 people for 40 years. It found that more than 10% of them eventually had a heart attack, but those who had pursued a light exercise regimen were 32% less likely to die from it compared to people who had been sedentary. Those exercising at least moderately were nearly 50% less likely to die. And finally, researchers say walking and chewing gum at the same time amounts to good exercise. A study in the Journal of Physical Therapy Science shows that chewing gum while you walk raises heart rate over walking alone and makes people walk faster and farther. For men over 40, that adds up to a significant additional calorie burn, while for women, it didn't make as much difference. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.